And now, Rabbi Lord Sachs and Lord Griffiths, please join me for the presentation of the 2016 Templeton Prize. These, there are six symbols here. There's the Torah, the scroll, the menorah, the tree of life, the dove, sign of peace following Noah, 25, for the 25 books you've written. <laughs> <laughs> and here, for the next, next one, next to me here uh, is a quill, a pen, into a bottle which is marked ink. <laughs> so Jonathan, that is the symbolism of uh, the Templeton Prize uh, being awarded to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Rabbi Sachs, this is the Tree of Life medallion, which represents the breadth and the depth of the purpose and vision of the Templeton Prize. Part. <laughs> the rest is pomp and circumstance. This is the prize. This is the check for your work and your, your ministry and a lifetime of exemplary service. Thank you. you. Congratulations. Beloved friends, the news that I had won this prize almost rendered me speechless, an event that would have been unprecedented in the history of the rabbinate, <laughs> but not quite. But it has left me moved, humbled, thankful, and deeply motivated. I want to express my deep sense of gratitude to and kinship with the Templeton family, to the memory of the late Sir John whose vision still drives the prize and the foundation that bears his name, to the memory of his son, the late Dr. Jack Templeton, who so ensured its continuity, but also and especially to Jack's wife, Pina, and their daughters, Heather Templeton Dill and Jennifer Templeton Simpson, who beautifully embody a combination of leadership and humility that is so rare and so precious. Elena and I had the privilege of visiting the Templeton Foundation headquarters in April of this year, and we were so impressed and inspired by the range and quality of the programs it supports and the vision that underlies them. May you continue to bring Blessings to the world. And our thanks in particular to Joanna Armand, Lynn Coletta, and Don Lair for everything 
surrounding tonight and the other events related to the prize. Pina, I loved your speech, but I didn't know until now that all those passengers on the bus were plainclothes policemen. <laughs> this is a rather shattering discovery. It reminds me of a famed British politician of the last century, the late Lord Curzon, who was known to be a very superior person. And they suggested that perhaps he would do something to connect with the general population. And they said, why, Lord Curzon, don't you try riding on an omnibus? He disappeared for an hour, came back severely shaken. His assistant said, my lord, you seem very troubled. What is the matter? He said, well, I got on the bus and I told the driver to take me to Eaton Square and you know he wouldn't. <laughs> so there we are. I thought I had gone on an omnibus, but there you are. I uh, want to thank, of course, Lord Griffiths for all his friendship and support and all he has done and for his words tonight. For Lord Carey for nominating me for the prize and for the music tonight. To organist Gerard Brooks, who played my favorite piece of organ music, Albinoni's Adagio. I must explain that we don't do a lot of Adagio in Judaism. <laughs> After 4,000 years, we still haven't learned to slow down, but we're, we're trying. And of course, to our beloved Shabbaton Choir, to conductor Stephen Levy, to Rabbi Lysen Lionel Rosenfeld, and cousin Johnny Turgel, and the wonderful, wonderful children's choir of the Sachs Morasha Primary School. I have to tell you, I went in to the children just before the event started just to thank them for singing tonight. And they said to me, are you speaking tonight? I said, yes. This little, wonderful little young man said, and is it going to be for very long? <laughs> and I said, Probably, and he said, is it going to be boring as well? <laughs> I said, guilty on all counts. They are wonderful children and I much prefer to see them. But I know so profoundly, and I feel it so fully, that the credit for this award is not mine, but simply that of the Jewish tradition. I know what it is simply to be a dwarf on the shoulder of giants. And I've tried simply to give voice to our tradition and its prophets and sages, and to the twin imperatives of Judaism, to be true to your faith and a blessing to others, regardless of their faith. People sometimes ask me how I became a speaker, and I give the honest answer, it was very simple. I just married the world's greatest listener. So I give my thanks to Elaine and to our wonderful children, Josh, Dina, and Gila, and their lovely families, who gave me so much support. And to Joanna, Dan, and Debbie, my wonderful team. And thanks ultimately to God, who believes in us so much more than we believe in him. Friends, I want tonight to look not back, to, but to look forward. And I want to chart new territory if I may tonight and see what I see as the great challenge for us, for me, for my work, for perhaps all of us in the coming generation.
You see, I want to define what I see as the central moral and spiritual challenge of our time. This is, I believe, a fateful moment in history. Because wherever you look, politically, religiously, economically, environmentally, there is insecurity and instability. It's not too much to say that the future of the West and the unique form of freedom it has pioneered for the past four centuries is altogether at risk. And I want tonight to look at one phenomenon that has shaped the West, leading it at first to greatness, but now to crisis. And it can be summed up in one word, outsourcing. On the face of it, nothing could be more innocent or productive. It's the basis of the modern economy. It's Adam Smith's division of labor, David Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage that says, even if you're better than me at everything, which you probably are, still we both gain. If I do what I'm best at and you do what you're best at and we trade. And that has shaped the modern world. But the question is, are there limits? Are there things we can't or shouldn't outsource? The issue has arisen because of the new technologies and instantaneous global communication. So instead of outsourcing within a community, today we do it between economies. We've seen the outsourcing of production to low-wage countries. We've seen the outsourcing of services so that you could be, for instance, in one town in America booking a hotel room in another town in America, unaware that your call is being processed in India. Now, this seemed like a good idea at the time. It was as if the West was saying to the world, here's a good division of the labor. You do the producing, we'll do the consuming. It was a lovely idea. But is that sustainable in the long run? Then banks began to outsource risk, lending far beyond their capacities in the belief that either property prices would go on rising forever or more significantly if they crashed. It would be someone else's problem, not mine. But there's one form of outsourcing that tends to be little noticed, and that is the outsourcing of memory. Our computers and smartphones have developed larger and larger memories from kilobytes to megabytes to gigabytes, while our memories and those of our children have got smaller and smaller. In fact, why bother to remember anything at all if you can look it up in a microsecond on Google or Wikipedia? But here I think we made a mistake. We confused history and memory, and they're not the same thing at all. History is an answer to the question, what happened? Memory is an answer to the question, who am I? History is about fact. Memory is about identity. History is his story. It happened to somebody else, not me. Memory is my story, the past that made me who I am, of whose legacy I am the guardian for the sake of generations yet to come. Without memory, there's no identity. And without identity, we are no more than dust on the surface of infinity. And lacking memory, I think we forgot one of the most important lessons to have emerged from the wars of religion in the 16th and 17th century and the new birth of freedom that followed. Even to say it today sounds antiquarian, but here it is. A free society is a moral achievement. Without self-restraint, 
without capacity to defer the gratification of instinct, without the habits of heart and deed that we call virtues, we will eventually lose our freedom. That's what John Locke meant when he contrasted liberty, the freedom to do what we ought, with license, the freedom to do what we want. It's what Adam Smith signaled when, before he wrote The Wealth of Nations, he wrote the theory of moral sentiments. It's what Washington meant when he said human rights can only be assured among a virtuous people. And Benjamin Franklin when he said only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. And Jefferson when he said a nation as a society forms a moral person and every member of it is personally responsible for his society. At some point, the West abandoned this belief. When I went to Cambridge in the late 60s, that moment which Heather so beautifully recalled, the course I was studying, which is today called philosophy, was then called moral sciences, meaning that just like the natural sciences, morality was objective, real, part of the external world. But I soon discovered that almost nobody believed this anymore. Morality was, I learnt, no more than the expression of emotion or subjective feeling or private intuition or autonomous choice. It was within limits whatever I chose it to be. In fact, there was nothing left to study but the meaning of words. To me, this sounded less like civilization than the breakdown of a civilization. And it took me years to discover, to work out what had actually happened. And here, I believe, is what happened. Morality had been split in two and outsourced to other institutions. There were moral choices, and then on the other hand, there were the consequences of our choices. Morality itself was outsourced to the market. The market gives us choices. And morality itself is just a set of choices in which right or wrong have no meaning beyond the satisfaction or frustration of desire. The result is that today we find it increasingly hard to understand where that, why there might be something that I want to do, can afford to do, have a legal right to do, and that nonetheless I should not do because it's unjust or dishonorable or disloyal or demeaning. In a word, unethical. Ethics has been reduced to economics. As for the consequences of our choices, these were outsourced to the state. Bad choices lead to bad outcomes, failed relationships, neglected children, depressive illness, wasted lives. But the government would deal with it. Forget about marriage. As a sacred bond between husband and wife. Forget about the need of children for a loving and secure human environment. Forget about the need for communities to give us support in times of need. Welfare was outsourced to the state. As for conscience, that once played so large a part in the moral life, that could be outsourced to regulatory bodies. So having reduced moral choice to economics, we transferred the consequences of our choices to politics. And it seemed to work, at least for a while. But by now, problems have arisen that just cannot be solved by the market or the state alone. To mention just a few, 
the structural unemployment that follows the outsourcing of production and services. The further unemployment that will come when artificial intelligence increasingly replaces human judgment and skill, artificially low interest rates that encourage borrowing and debt and discourage saving and investment, wildly inflated CEO pay, the lowering of living standards, first of the working class, then of the middle class, the insecurity of employment even for graduates, the inability of young families to afford a home, the collapse of marriage leading to intractable problems of child poverty and depression, the collapse of birth rates throughout Europe leading to unprecedented levels of immigration that are now the only way the West can sustain its population and the systemic failure to integrate some of those groups. The loss of family, community and identity that once gave us strength to survive unstable times. And there are many other problems. Why are they insoluble? First, because they're global and governments are only national. Second, because they're long-term. While the market and liberal democratic politics only deals in the short term. Third, because they depend on changing habits of behavior, which neither the market nor the liberal democratic state are mandated to do. But above all, because they can't be solved by the market and state alone. You can't outsource conscience. You can't delegate moral responsibility away. When you do, when you say somebody else will deal with it, you raise expectations that cannot be met. And when inevitably those expectations are not met, society becomes freighted with disappointment, anger, fear, resentment and blame. People start taking refuge in magical thinking, which today takes one of four forms, the far right, the far left, religious extremism, and aggressive secularism. The far right seeks a return to a golden past that never was. The far left seeks a utopian future that never will be. Aggressive religious extremists believe you can bring salvation by terror. Aggressive secularists believe that you get, if you get rid of religion, there will be peace. These are all fantasies, and pursuing them will endanger the very foundations of freedom. Yet we've seen even in mainstream British and American politics Forms of ugliness I never thought I would see in my lifetime. And we've seen in university campuses, in Britain and America, the abandonment of academic freedom in the name of the right not to be offended by being confronted by views with which I disagree. This is le trahison d'éclair, the intellectual betrayal of our time, and this is very dangerous indeed. So is there another way? I believe there really is. Two historical phenomena have long fascinated me. One is the strange fact that having lagged behind China for a thousand years, the West overtook it 
in the 17th century, creating science, industry, technology, the free market, and the free society. How did that happen? The second is, no less strange, the fact that Jews and Judaism survived for 2,000 years after the destruction of the Second Temple, having lost every single thing on which their existence was predicated in biblical times. They lost their land, their home, their freedom, their temple, their kings, their prophets, and their priests. And the explanation in both cases is the same. And it is the precise opposite of outsourcing, namely the internalization of what had once been external. So for instance, Though Jews had lost their land, Jerusalem, the temple, nonetheless, they rebuilt them in the mind. Wherever in the world Jews prayed, there was the temple. Every prayer was a sacrifice. Every Jew a priest, every community a fragment of Jerusalem. Something similar happened in strands of Islam that interpreted jihad not as a physical war on the battlefield, but as a spiritual struggle within the soul. And it's something very similar that happened within Christianity after the Reformation, especially in the Calvinism that in the 16th and 17th centuries transformed Holland, Scotland, England of the Revolution, and America of the Pilgrim Fathers. In fact, it was that to which Max Weber famously attributed the spirit of capitalism, i.e. the external authority of the church was replaced by the internal voice of conscience. And that internalized conscience made possible the widely distributed networks of trust on which the smooth functioning of the market depends. We're so used to contrasting the material and the spiritual that we sometimes forget that the word credit comes from the Latin credo, which means, I believe, anima amin. We sometimes forget that confidence, that requisite of investment and economic growth, comes from fidentia, the Latin for faith or trust. What emerged in Judaism and in post-Reformation Christianity was the rarest of character types, the inner directed personality. Most societies for most of history have either been tradition directed or other directed. People do what they do because that's how it's always been done or because that's what other people do. Inner directed types are different. They become the pioneers the innovators, the survivors. They have an internalized satellite navigation system, so they aren't scared of uncharted territory. They have a strong sense of duty to others. They try to have secure marriages. They hand on their values to their children. They belong to strong communities. They take daring but carefully calculated risks. And when they fail, they have rapid recovery times. They have discipline. They enjoy tough challenges and hard work. They play it long. They're more interested in sustainability than quick profits. They know they have to be responsible to customers, employees, and shareholders, as well as to the wider public, because only thus will they survive in the long run. They don't do stupid things, like creative accounting, or subprime mortgages, 
or falsified emissions data because they know you can't fake it forever. They don't consume the present at the cost of the future because they have a sense of responsibility for the future. They have the capacity to defer the gratification of instinct and they do all this because they have an inner moral voice. Some call it conscience. Some call it the voice of God. Cultures like that stay young. They defeat entropy, the loss of energy. They dispel the decline and fall of every other empire and superpower in history. But somehow the West has, in the immortal words of Queen Elsa in Frozen, I hope you get my rabbinic reference here, the West has let it go. It has externalized what it once internalized. It has outsourced responsibility. It's reduced ethics to economics and politics, which means we are dependent on the market and the state forces we can do little to control. And one day, our children or grandchildren or theirs will turn back and ask, how did the West lose what once made it great? Every observer of the grand sweep of history, from the prophets of Israel to the Islamic sage Ibn Khaldun, from Giambattista Vico to John Stuart Mill, from Bertrand Russell to Will Durant, has said essentially the same thing, that civilizations begin to die when they lose the moral passion that brought them into being in the first place. It happened to Greece and Rome, and it can happen to the West. The sure signs are these. A falling birth rate, moral decay, growing inequalities, a loss of trust in social institutions, self-indulgence on the part of the rich, hopelessness on the part of the poor, unintegrated minorities, a failure to make sacrifices in the present for the sake of the future, a loss of faith in old beliefs and no new vision to take their place. These are the danger signals, and they are flashing now. There is an alternative to strive to become inner-directed again. This means recovering the moral dimension that links our welfare to the welfare of others, making us collectively responsible for the common good. It means recovering the spiritual dimension that helps us tell the difference between the value of things and their price. We are more than consumers and voters. Our dignity transcends what we earn and own. It means remembering that what's important isn't just satisfying our desires, but also knowing which desires to satisfy. It means restraining ourselves in the present so that our children may have a viable future. It means reclaiming collective memory and identity so that society becomes less of a hotel and more of a home. In short, 
It means learning that there are some things we cannot or should not outsource. Some responsibilities we cannot and should not delegate away. We owe it to our children and grandchildren not to throw away what once made the West great. And not for the sake of some idealized past, but for the sake of a demanding and deeply challenging future. If we do simply let it go, if we continue to forget that a free society is a moral achievement that depends on responsibility and restraint, then what will come next, be it Russia or China or ISIS or Iran, will neither be liberal nor democratic, and it will certainly not be free. We need to restate the moral and spiritual dimensions in the language of the 21st century using the media of the 21st century to inspire, to give hope, and to unite. The moral and spiritual dimensions of human flourishing are what the Templeton Prize and the Templeton Foundation have always been about. And I pray and I hope that it will be by developing these things, themes globally, together with others, over the coming years, that I hope I can repay a little of the honor you have bestowed on me today. Thank you.